Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Acts chapter 25 and verse 1. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favour to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself are going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there, if he has done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared before the Jews, when Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me? There on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had concurred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here for whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it's not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and he has has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, They had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus whom Paul claimed claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. 
Therefore, I've brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it's unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And now come with me to verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long? I pray, God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him, the king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. They left the room, and while talking with one another, they said, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Simon. Long reading, eh? Nice long reading. Um, Welcome to City Light North Adelaide. My name is Andrew Tran. I'm one of the elder candidates here. Again, if it's your first time here or you're kind of newish here, welcome. We'd love to chat afterwards. Let's have a chat afterwards. There's pulled pork afterwards. I'm so keen for pulled pork. Um, If you uh, have your Bibles open, keep them open. We're going to be in Acts 25 and 26. As I said before, that text was a big, long text. And we're actually going to even reference stuff that wasn't even read today. So I would encourage you, if you have time... even if you don't have time, make time to read 25, 26 again sometime later this week. Uh, There's so much stuff that can be taken out of it. Um, I've only been picking a few things. I think we're trying to preach the force of the passage, but there's so many things you can take out of of them, out of this particular um, text. Um, So if you're new here, we are 34 sermons into our series on Acts, Unstoppable, how God uses the church to change the world. And man, this 34, everyone, has anyone been here for all 34 sermons? Okay, for a few people? You get a, we should get them a medal or something, man. That's, 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 a, that's a long slog. We've, we've been, I, I hope that you've been challenged and inspired and uh, spurred on. Um, the whole point of Acts is actually to do those things. It's to challenge, inspire, and to spur you on. In fact, Luke wrote Acts and Luke, oh no, Luke, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, as a prequel and sequel. And the whole point of it was that, um, so that you would have certainty of the things that you've been taught about Jesus. And so it's kind of hard to believe that we started this sermon series in uh, October 2018, and we've been in and out of it. But uh, um, another thing that's kind of crazy, you know, thinking about when we, when we say like hard things to believe, um, what else is hard to believe is it's also 1st of March, right? <laughs> anyone, feel, anyone get those vibes? Well, how the heck is it the 1st of March already? Um, I feel like it was yesterday, I was up here, I was, it was early in the year I was preaching, and I talked about like, oh, it's the new year, it's the new you, new goals, that kind of stuff. Truth be told, I'm still struggling with some of my goals. My room is still messy, if you're wondering. Um, our DG had, uh, we had a, a night at the beginning of the year, 
and we to set just some spiritual goals. Um, our, uh, one of, some of our goals are to read the Bible more. Some of our goals were to just be in community more. Some of our goals were to be more loving to our neighbors. Some of our goals were just to be a better friend. Or, and part of that is to talk to people about Jesus more. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that if you... And that you have some goals for your life in this particular area. And if you're a Christian, I'm hoping that you have some identified areas of potentially like growth that you might, have, that might want, um, but also areas where you can be salt and light in the domains that God has you in. Um, but no condemnation here. Um, I just want a real talk for a sec. How are, we, how are we going with those goals? Okay. It's crickets, that's fine. Um, that's fine. I don't get that. Uh, no, Reality, I'm not, not, not trying to guilt trip anyone, not trying to out anyone in particular, but some of us, are, I know, are really good with goals, and a lot of us really struggle with goals. Uh, realistically, um, some of us probably haven't made too much progress with our spiritual goals. Um, if you're like me, I found out my, last week I was an Enneagram type 3. That means I'm an achiever. And so I see now that I'm two months into the year, and I feel like I haven't achieved anything with my life. And I'm like, what am I doing with my life right now? But I feel a bit stagnant. And I'm just speaking for me right now. I feel a bit stagnant. Whether it be like, And I don't know if you feel the same way. Maybe with spiritual growth, maybe with a lack of evangelism, maybe... You're struggling to see Jesus in Jesus' kingdom growing. Um, maybe you're struggling with society's kind of growing hostility towards Christianity. And these things can be, I know, quite can be deflating. They can be uh, depressing. They can be quite defeating. Um, so just want to just take inventory right now. How are you going with your faith? Are you been a bit of a spiritual funk, maybe? Or maybe would you say your, your soul is downcast and heavy? And the reason why I'm asking this question is because if that is you tonight, this sermon is for you. And it's, this sermon is for everyone, but especially if you feel, are feeling downcast with your, with your spiritual life right now, this sermon is for you. My hope and prayer that, that tonight, that as we go through this text, that you'll see God in the work of in the work, in the work, um, in the mess of life. And why do I say that? Well, today's text is essentially Paul was meant to be on mission, but he's rather he's, instead he's stuck in a jail. He's stuck in a jail. He keeps testifying. Nothing happens. He gets thrown back into jail again. That sounds pretty depressing, right? If you listen to the reading, Paul is locked up in Caesarea. He confronts Festus, and he gets locked up. And then he testifies to Agrippa II about Jesus again. And we don't know if Agrippa was really changed at all by Paul's words. So how do we even get here? If you're new to the series right now, how do we even get to this point? Well, in Acts, uh, at the start of Acts, Jesus uh, resurrects from the dead, and he sees um, he meets his apostles, and in Acts 1a, he, says, he tells them that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as the, as the story goes in Acts, Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul, he persecutes the church, he hunts them down, and he approves of their deaths. But 
a radical encounter happens here. Saul has a radical appointment with Jesus. Essentially, he gets kicked off his horse by an ultralight beam, a beam brighter than the sun itself. And through this, he encounters Jesus and is saved. And then God chooses him to be the missionary to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And he says to Ananias, and Ananias, uh, regarding Paul, he says that I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So if you were reading for the, if you were reading for this for the first time, and especially in the first century, when you start getting towards like chapter twenty, you get a sense of where it's going. You see, through Paul's missionary journeys, he goes, he he goes all over the Roman Empire to spread God's word about Jesus. And you see in the third missionary um, uh, journey of, uh, of Paul, in Acts 19.21, Paul says, after I've been there to Jerusalem, I must see Rome. He's on his way to Rome. You get a sense as, as you keep reading Acts to this point, it's getting closer and closer and closer to Rome. And if you were, if you were a first uh, century reader, especially in the Middle East, Rome is some random place out there. You knew of the Roman Empire because they took over your land. But you knew that Rome was, to you, the ends of the earth. And so as you're reading, as you're reading Acts, you see the gospel go forward, the gospel go forward, the gospel go forward, and then, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, it just stops. It just stops in Jerusalem. Because Paul... As he's giving, as he comes there to, um, to give money to the poor, he gets captured by the Roman centurions. Now, you might be thinking, man, prison's nothing. We've seen prison breaks before. We've seen prison break one, prison break two, in both acts. Season three, let's bring it. But like the actual season three of prison break three, or like the season three of prison break, nothing actually exciting happens at all. In fact, what happens? What happens? Paul defends himself and he testifies of Jesus to the crowds and what? They revile him. He goes before the Jewish council and violent dissension breaks up and they plan to kill him. He goes before Governor Felix and Governor Felix feigns to listen to him but only because he wants a bribe from him. And then he gets locked up for two whole years. Now put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. You've been falsely accused, you've been yelled at, you've been beaten, mocked, and scorned. And every time you share your faith, no one listens. Some people want to kill you. And some people pretend to listen to you because they want money from you. I don't know if um, you've ever been to a court hearing or a trial. I haven't, but I've heard that it's pretty stressful. It's pretty stressful and tiresome. What Paul was going through must have really sucked. (laughs) Must have really sucked. And that brings us to our reading today. Real chipper, Andrew, thanks. You can only imagine while being on trial in front of Festus and Agrippa, how life-draining, how soul-sucking that would have been. If I was me, I'd imagine I'd be like, man, I just don't want to be here. I just want to go home. I just want my mum's food. If anyone was going to be struggling with the circumstances, it was going to be Paul. He knew that he, he, was, he was meant to be in Rome, but he couldn't get there. I don't know what, the text doesn't say what Paul's inner monologue was thinking, but 
it certainly feels like a case of, God, what? where are you at? Where are you? Are you going to show up and do this thing like you said you're going you're gonna to do? But as we explore chapters 25 and 26 today, we see that stagnation of the gospel, or apparent stagnation, is no opposition to God's mission. Stagnation is no opposition to God's mission. And that leads us to our first point today. God has the right people, he's the right place, and he's the right timing. Right people, right place, right timing. Paul was stuck in jail for two years, but the people involved, their actions and their circumstances, this was no coincidence. Let's look at the characters for a sec. Festus, the new governor, he's only been there for three days. Gets into the province and he's asked by the Jews to move Paul to Jerusalem for his quote-unquote hearing. But really the Jews were about to kill him again. But funnily enough, Festus unwittingly protects Paul and says, no. It's funny because in verses 11, 9 to 11, Festus actually wants to do the Jews a favor. He wants to ingratiate them because he's the new kid in the block. He wants to be in their good books. And the best way Festus could have done that was to actually give Paul down to Jerusalem, send Paul down to Jerusalem. I mean, that's lucky for Paul, right? Is it really luck? Now, when we, we know that Paul wanted to go to Rome at some point in time, but he was stuck in a bit of a predicament. He knew that he was innocent of all the charges, and that he knew that the ruling authorities knew that he was innocent of all those charges, but they couldn't punish him. But he was also unsure what the Roman officials would actually do. So in chapter 25, and in a lot of commentaries, I read that Paul was unsure that Festus would actually give, maybe Festus was going to give him to the Jews. So in order to protect himself, what does he, what does he do? He invokes his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar, to appeal to the emperor. Essentially, Paul was taking it out of Festus's hands. And simultaneously, he was booking his ticket to Rome. Now, I don't know if this was a calculated move by, by, by Paul at all, but this would not have been possible if Paul was not a Roman citizen. Lucky for Paul, right? Was it really luck? And the thing is, Festus agrees to send him. And the thing is, though, Festus was unsure of what even to report about Paul. And he was hesitant to send Paul out to Rome anyway. And this leads us to the timely arrival of King Agrippa II. And this is good news for Paul because Agrippa II was actually quite acquainted with the Jewish laws and customs and controversies. Paul knew of the reputation of Agrippa, that he was a pious Jew. And this is why Paul could appeal to him. But even though though in his uh, testifying to Agrippa about Jesus, he didn't believe King Agrippa did him a favor because he verified that Paul had done nothing wrong. And what's even better for Paul was that he, King Agrippa reiterated that he essentially had to go to Caesar. And so behind all these characters here, God knew what they were all on about. He knew their motivations. He knew what they would do. And he allowed the events to happen as they did. God wasn't wrong in sending Festus to replace Felix. God wasn't late in having Paul locked up. And God didn't coincidentally choose King Agrippa II to be the ruler of that province. 
God knew exactly what he was doing. He had the right people in the right place at the right time. God knows exactly what he's talking about. He knows what he's doing. His sovereign hand is over every little detail in this story. And that is actually very, very good news for us as Christians. Because right now, God and his, his hand is over every detail in your story. God's hand is over every single little detail in your story. God wants you exactly where you are. Think about this for a sec. You, just as you are right now, imperfect as you are, striving and growing in your Christ-likeness, in the place where you are right now, little old Adelaide, with your work, your study, your uni, your home stuff, and the fact that you're living here in March the 1st, 2020, not 20 years ago, not 20 years in the future, but here, right now. God's giving you skills. He's giving you talents, opportunities, relationships, monies, resources. And above all, he's giving you his Holy Spirit. All this to be all you need to be in the place you are right now for you to be salt and light. And not, not just to be... Uh, not just to preserve whatever's good in our culture right now, but to bring flavor and life to it. To be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. An old mentor of mine uh, once told me, God is like a Chinese chef. And I'm like, what do you, what do you, mean, what do you mean by that? He says, like, God is like a Chinese chef. He, like, he uses everything. And I'm like, I, I understood what he was trying to get at, but I didn't understand the analogy. And this actually became much more apparent when I had uh, uh, dinner with some, with some friends last, uh, from, from friends actually from here. We called ourselves the, the Duck Squad. Uh, it's me, Bruce, Mark, Nick. Anyway, everyone's welcome to being part of the Duck Squad if you want. It's no, no subscription. You can just join us if you want. But essentially, uh, we went out to have Peking Duck. Um, I used to think it was Pecking Duck, but there's no C. It's Peking Duck, right? Um, and the thing is with Peking duck, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. As you can see on the screen, um, you have that, that, that Peking duck, the, the crispy skin, the soft doughy pancake, the spring onion, the sauce, oof. It is, it's really, really great. Um, but the thing is with this Peking duck meal is that people think it's just this thing on the screen, right? But Peking duck is actually not just that. You can actually have side dishes that are made from it as well. And so when you, have a whole, when you have a duck, you have, yes, this is the main course, of course, but you then have leftover meat. And what do you do with the leftover meat? Well, like a Chinese chef does, they don't, they don't get rid of anything. They take the leftover meat and stir-fry it into fried rice. Right? And then you have, okay, now we've got this Peking duck meal and then this fried rice thing. You have bones left. But surely we get rid of that, right? Nah. Not really. What you do then is you actually put that into a broth and then you make a soup out of it. If that was me, I'd just get rid of the, I just get rid of the bones, man. <laughs> but no, God is like a Chinese chef. He uses everything. And just like Paul, he had peaking highs and bone-dry lows. Just... For all of us, when we think about our spiritual lives, we always, want, we always want it to be peaking at the top, right? We don't want no bone-dry lows at all. 
But Paul experienced these bone dry lows in his jail time. He experienced unrelenting resistance. He experienced trial after trial after trial. And at the time, he probably wanted to get rid of it, but God didn't waste it. God took it and worked behind the scenes and used it for his glory, for his mission, as well as Paul's good and Paul's joy. This is what it means when it says in Romans that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. As a Christian, God has uniquely wired each and every one of you for a time such as now to proclaim the excellencies of God's glory through your words and your deeds. As a Christian, God has uniquely placed you in the areas of life that he has you in right now to be his ambassador, to be his agent of reconciliation and redemptive change. As a Christian, God has put, uniquely put people around you to impact directly and for them to impact you. And God has carefully timed all of this to happen, all the good things, all the bad things, all the circumstances surrounding your lives and the lives of of others. It can be hard to see God work in the mess, especially when you're, pers- when you're looking at the small micro perspective. But God is obsessed with the micro details because he's also concerned with the macro details, the meta story of his story, of history. And using these relatively micro things, he uses those, our lives, to shape his story. And that includes the waiting, the pain, the feelings of loneliness and hopelessness, the doubt, the suffering, and even the ordinary. Even though life might feel stagnant sometimes, stagnation is no opposition to God's mission. And it's partly because of God's sovereignty that Paul was confident to share his testimony, his story. Which brings me to our second point today, um, interwoven storylines. I encourage you to read, again, chapter 26. Uh, it recaps the story of Paul's conversion, especially if you're newish and you're not acquainted with Acts, please read it. Um, chapter 26 tells us of the story of how God changed Paul's life. And I think the author, Luke, here is, he, he, he's told this story twice so far in the book of Acts. Why is he telling us this again? Well, if you look at it, his recount in this particular part is actually the most detailed. And you might be wondering why. Well, I think Luke is actually doing something very, very, very clever here. Um, have you ever seen, like, in, when you're watching a TV show or whenever you get to the penultimate episode of, like, a season or something, and then they do, like, a flashback episode, and you're like, oh, it's a flashback episode, one of those things. <laughs> but there's a reason why they do that. They do that to remind you of what has happened in the past and how far we have come, and what's about to happen. And Luke does the same thing. Luke is trying to remind us, despite the present stagnation in Paul's life, that God's power was at hand here. And we've seen, the, we've seen the power of God work radically in Paul's conversion. The same God who broke the heart of the hardest man towards Jesus, the chief of sinners, is the same God that was still on the move today. He's sitting, Luke is setting up the, the stage for the final moments in Acts. But I also believe that Luke is trying to show us that Paul's salvation story is not a standalone story. No, it isn't. How do we know that? 
Well, after Paul finishes testifying to what God did in his life, he relates it back to God's bigger story. Look at chapter 26, 22 to 23. It says this. Paul was saying this. I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would have said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. Paul doesn't downplay his he doesn't downplay his own testimony or his story, but rather what he does is he recognizes where his story fits within the grand narrative of God's story. He sees his place in history, that his life wasn't just about him, but it was first and foremost and ultimately about God. And that's the thing. Right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for mankind because it gives mankind hope. Hope that we, need, we needed a saviour to save us from our sinful rebellion. And the good news is that God has given us his saviour through Jesus. Right? So when you believe, you don't just get a ticket to heaven, but you get to know him intimately. You get to know the creator of the universe as your father. This gospel gives mankind hope because it gives us personal salvation. But the gospel is not just about personal salvation. It's no less than that, but it's not just about that. The prophets and Moses uh, pointed to Jesus' work, salvific work on the cross, but the prophets also pointed to the, new coming, to the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. And this is important. Why? Because at the beginning of time, everything was good. And then mankind sinned, and sin comes and fractures the cosmos. And everyone and everything is tainted by the curse of sin. That needs to be fixed. This is why death exists. This is why cancer exists. This is why coronavirus exists. This is why plagues like the, like the locust plague in Africa right now exists. This is why poverty exists. This is why suffering and pain exists. That needs to be fixed. But at the beginning of time, God could have just cleaned his hands and started fresh. He could have just destroyed the earth, smoked it, and started again. But God doesn't do that. God, in his infinite wisdom, decided to include us in his story. He doesn't want to wash his hands of us and say, I'm done. God wants to save us, and throughout history, God has been saving a people for himself. But he's also resolved to bring about the restoration of creation. The Bible is a story about God, and we know the ending. God, of course, is the director, he's the producer, he's the writer, he's the main protagonist. And we, as his beloved children, we, our stories play a role in his redemptive narrative as he redeems creation. No matter how big or small that story is, we aren't extras in this movie. I don't know if you know what an extra is. An extra, if you, this is a picture of Daniel Craig, as you can see, Daniel Craig. And there's a guy in the back with a broom. I'm really sad that this GIF image doesn't work because if you look this up, this, 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 I think, I'm not quite sure what movie this is. It's probably like some James Bond movie. But if you see the GIF image, the guy in the back with the broom is just sweeping, but he's not actually sweeping the floor at all. It's just hovering off the ground like, like this, just... And he's, just, and he's just doing this and pretending like no one can see him. We're not an extra in this movie. An extra is someone who plays a part in the background and has something insignificant part to play. 
this extra here doesn't care and has no impact. But no, you are God's chosen people. You are royal priesthood. You're actors and actresses in his grand narrative. What does that mean for you? Well, firstly, it means that your testimony carries weight. If you're a Christian, remember, what, what, has, what has God done for you? What has God done for you? Well, where were you at before you met Jesus? You might have a crazy story. Great. Or you might think, oh man, my conversion story my, is so boring. You might think that, but all stories are miraculous ones because we were once dead and now we are alive. Don't underestimate the power of your story. As much as it is yours, it actually belongs to God. And God can use it off to show off his power, his love, his mercy, his kindness, his unmerited favor, his grace, and chiefly his glorious character. Secondly, what this means for us is that no matter your sinful past or your stagnant present, God can and will still use you. The God of the universe, Jesus, died for you. And because of that, we now all play. We don't get to play. We all play a role in the grand narrative of God. And you might not see how your life contribu contributes to, to, to that, and that's okay. But that's probably, you can't probably see it because you're not God. And that's okay. God has placed good works in front of you to do, to walk in. And even though if you feel like your life is stagnated or your spiritual walk with God is stagnated, it is no opposition to God's mission. You can't stop it. So how should this text shape us? If stagnation is no opposition for God's mission, how should this text shape us? Well, we find that answer in closing, in the closing part of the text. I'll read for you verses 20, uh, chapter 26, verses 24 to 29. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of, his, of this has escaped his notice because he, it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. When we read of Paul's imprisonment and his response in his trials. When we, see, when we see God at work in Paul's situation, it should actually build us up with an eagerness to share the hope that is within us. Despite not being heard by the crowd, despite the, the Jewish council, despite Governor Felix or Festus, Paul does not stop from sharing his testimony with Agrippa. For Paul, his eagerness to share came from an overflow of his relationship with God. Paul was shaped by experiencing God's love and his kindness and his mercy. But Paul was also shaped by witnessing true events. He says, I am speaking true and rational words. 
The truth is not something that you want to club people over the head, over the head with, though. And Paul is trying to convince Paul, King Agrippa of the truth because Paul is intellectually motivated, he's emotionally compelled, and he is spirit-driven. Notice how in verse 29 he says, to the degree of the eagerness that he has, Paul says, whether short or long, regardless of the effort, regardless of the time. And I think, like Paul, I think we should be eager to, to share as well. We have the best news on the planet. We have the best news on the planet. We have life to the full, eternity with God, who can satisfy the longings of our soul. And through Jesus, we have perfection. We have right standing with God. Not because we achieved it, but because God gave it to us. We should be eager to share this, but also because our faith is also rational. It's based on historical fact. It is intensely intellectual. It is immensely rational. It is radically life transformational. We have so much reason to share the good news within us. Now, the temptation is when we see Paul's example here is that we just got to copy Paul. We're just going to copy him. Um, and in some ways, I actually think that's quite depressing. I actually think it's depressing because, one, Paul was a machine. <laughs> that guy was a church planning machine. I, as I said before, I'm a, uh, I'm a type A, uh, Enneagram 3 achiever, overachiever. And I sometimes find Paul a bit too much. <laughs> but we don't build up our eagerness by looking at Paul and what he did and copying his deeds. No, we don't do that. We build our eagerness to share the, the gospel by being inspired by God's work for us and across history. Only then, will we, only then will we be able to imitate Paul like he imitates Christ. Now it must be said that this eagerness to share is not what saves people. Paul was very eager to share and he didn't end up converting everyone he met. As we said last week, as, as Simon said last week, throughout our Acts series, um, the gospel, exposure to the gospel has mixed responses. But like Paul, our attitude should be the same. He says, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Since God is sovereign and he will use us, it means that none, none of our effort is in vain. None of it. Remember, God is like a Chinese chef. He doesn't waste anything. Now, I know for some of us, um, people in my DG, people outside of my DG, um, I know that some of us struggle with this willingness to share because we've had heaps of knockbacks. Uh, like Paul, we've shared with so many people. We've had people argue with us and mock us. And it gets pretty deflating when people don't respond. I get that. I mean, we struggle to share because we think, quote, unquote, we don't know enough. Or we don't know what to say. Even if I've been a Christian for like 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Sometimes we struggle because we don't want to feel rejection like Paul did. And we struggle because it's emotionally taxing. I understand the burden that's felt by some of us. We want some of our friends and our family to know Jesus so badly. We want them to know Jesus so badly because he's everything to us. And that weighs us down. Let me encourage you to persist. And know that God will actually, if this is you, that God will honour you for honouring him. 
But know this, and this goes for all of us, I want to gent- gently remind you here. This is the thing. I believe the struggle with our faith, with sharing our faith, is because we actually look at ourselves as being the one that transformed people and not God. Now, if you're a Christian, you would know that's categorically wrong. We know that God is the one who does the work. But do we actually act like that? Do we actually believe that? So if things are hard with sharing your faith, let me encourage you, you've already put the work of your salvation into God's hands. You've already done that. You've given that up to God. God's already done that for you. Now I encourage you, you can put the results of your works into his hands as well. Because truth be told, truth be told, there are no better hands on the face of this planet than his. Not yours, not mine, not Simon's, but God's. No matter what the stagnation looks like, no matter what resistance feels like, stagnation is no opposition for the mission of God. He will finish what he started. What we've seen in the last few weeks in Acts is that even though the proclamation of the gospel seems to have halted in the last four or five chapters, underneath the surface of all of this is God orchestrating events and God is on the move. Despite the seemingly stagnant progress of the gospel, Paul was never... Well, Paul was always ready, ever, ever ready to tell people of the goodness and faithfulness of God. And we have faith, we have evidence that the gospel is truly unstoppable. And it's not just in reading Acts. The fact that we're breathing right now in this church, 13,000 kilometers away from Jerusalem, 2,000 years later from where it all happened, that is evidence enough, right? So as we leave here tonight, let me encourage you. Let's keep our eyes not on the stagnant things or how things might look in your spiritual walk right now. Or let's not keep our eyes, quote unquote, on the bleak things, uh, on how bleak things look for Christianity in the West. Let's not keep our eyes on our own faith or our own witness. But we should keep our eyes on the one thing that we should always keep our eyes on, that is God himself, on his sovereign, all-powerful nature, and in his infinitely glorious character, who we get to enjoy and treasure because of God's, Jesus' work for us. Let's pray and trust God together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you that they're God-breathed and they are there for us to know you, Help us to trust you in um, all walks of our life. You've put a, a great mission in front of us to reach the ends of the earth. And it, I know it's uncomfortable to, uh, to talk about faith sometimes, but I pray that uh, you help us, give us eyes to see you. Give us, incline our hearts toward you. Give us boldness and courage to tell people of your goodness. There is no one like you, none at all. 
Help us trust you because you are the only one that is worthy of trust. We pray for those believers in our lives that we've been praying for for ages and ages and ages who don't know you. We pray, Lord, for breakthrough. Your spirit can do any, the spirit is like the wind. We pray that you, that you move your spirit, Lord Father. Change the hearts of those that we've been, we've been praying for. Help us to have a missional heart for you, for your lost people, for your people, for the people that, that don't know you. And as well, Lord, I want to just pray for that. Help us to be salt and light in our communities. You've, you've uniquely wired us to, 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 to be where we're at. Help us to see gospel opportunities everywhere we go, whether that just be in the words that we say or the, the kindies that we do to people. Help us to stand out as your people. Direct our every mood, Lord God. We know that you are the sovereign king over the universe. Help us trust you in that. We thank you for Jesus and all that he is to us. You are our treasure and delight. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.